companionship only your own and sympathetic coolies, and accommodation only such as the Chinese wayside hostelry has offered, to be able fully to realize what the luxurious dog bungalows, with their excellent appointments, mean to the returning exile, paved roads, the bane of man and beast, and a little out of Tenchu, mountains are left behind, there is no need now for struggle and constant physical exertion in climbing to get over the country, with no hills to climb, no stones to cut my feet or slip upon, with wide sweeps of magnificent country leading three days later into dense, tropical jungle, entrancing to the merest tyro of a nature student, and with the knowledge that my walking was almost at an end, all would have gone well had I been able to tear from my mind the fact that at this juncture I should have to make to the reader a great confession of foiled plans, for today's I was accompanied by the ref, W.J. Ambury, of the China Inland Mission, who was making an itinerary among the tribes on the opposite side of the taping, which we followed most of the time, he rode a mule, and am I not justified in believing that you, too, reader, with such an excellent companion, one who had such a perfect command of the language, and who could make the journey so much more interesting, you would have ridden your pony, I rode mine, I abandoned pedestrianism and rode to Chuchan two full days, and when, after a pleasant rest under a sheltering banyan, we went our different ways, I was sorry indeed to have to fall back upon my men for companionship, but it was not to be for long, not an island or was, to be a fort, but the little place bears no outward military evidences whatever which would lead one to believe it, it is populated chiefly by shans, the bulk of these interesting people now live split up into a great number of semi-independent states, some tributary to Burma, some to China, and some to Siam, and yet the man in the street knows little about them, one cannot mistake them, especially the women, with their peculiar Mongolian features and sallow complexions and characteristic headdress. The men are less distinguishable, probably, generally speaking, but the rough cotton turban instead of the round cap with the knob on the top alone enables one more readily to pick them out from the Chinese. Short, well-built and strongly made, the women strike one particularly as being a hardy, healthy set of people. Shans are recognized to be a peaceful people, but a village squabble outside Chinchung, in which I took part, is one of the exceptions to prove the rule. It did not take the eye of a hawk or the ear of a pointer to recognize that a big row was in full progress. Shan women roundly abused the men, and Shan men, standing afar off, abused their women. A few Chinese who looked on had a few words to say to these, i.e., beat on the futility of these everyday squabbles, whilst a few Shans, mistaking me again for a foreign official, came vigorously to me pouring out their souls over the whole affair. We were all visibly at cross purposes. I chimed in with my infallible, Atom, you stupid ass. Atom, I don't understand. I don't understand, and what with the noise of the disputants, the Chinese bystanders, my own men they were all acutely disgusted with every Shan in the district, and plainly showed it, because they could not be understood in speech and myself all talking at once, and the dogs who mistook me for a beggar, and tried to get at close grips with me for being one of that fraternity. It was a veritable bedlam and tower of Babel in awfulest combination. At length I raised my hand, mounted a boulder in the middle of the road, and endeavored to pacify the infuriated mob. I shouted harshly. I brandished my bamboo in the air. I gesticulated. I whacked two men who came near me. At last they stopped, expecting me to speak. Only a look of stupidest and illegibility could I return. 
however, and had to roar with laughter at the very foolishness of my position upon that stone. Soon the multitude calmed down and laughed, too. I yelled, Chizio, and we proceeded, leaving the Shans again at peace with all the world. Shans have been found in many other parts, even as far north as the borders of Tibet. But a Shan, owing to the similarity of his language in all parts of Asia, differs from the Chinese or the Yuanman tribesmen in that he can get on anywhere. It is said that from the sources of the Irawadai down to the borders of Siamese territory, and from Assam to Tonkin, a region measuring 600 miles each way, and including the whole of the former Nanjiao Empire, the language is practically the same. Dialects exist as they do in every country in the world, but a Shan born anywhere within these bounds will find himself able to carry on a conversation in parts of the country he has never heard of, hundreds of miles from his own home and this is more than 600 years after the fall of the Nanjiao dynasty, and among Shans who have had no real political or commercial relation with each other, I found them a charming people, peaceful and obliging, treating strangers with kindness and frank cordiality. For the most part, they are Buddhists. The dress of the Chinese Shans, which, however, I found varied in different localities, leads one to believe that they are an exceptionally clean race. But I can testify that this is not the case. In many ways they are dirtier than the Chinese notably in the preparation of their food. And I feel compelled to say a word here for the general benefit of future travelers. Never expect a Shan to work hard. He can work hard. And he will when he likes. But I do not believe that even the Malay, that nature's gentleman of the farther south, is lazier. As servants they are failures. The European in this district whose Chinese servant had left him, thought he would try a shan, and invited a man to come, be your servant, of course I will, I am honored, and the European thought at last he was in clover, he explained that he should want his breakfast at 6 o'clock a.m. and that the servant's duties would be to cut grass for the horse, go to the market to buy provisions, feed on the premises, and leave for home to sleep at 7 o'clock p.m. the shan opened a large mouth, then he spoke. He would be pleased, he said, to come to work about nine o'clock, that he had several marriageable daughters still on his hands and could not therefore, and would not, cut grass, he objected going to the market in the extreme heat of the day, he could not think of eating the foreigner's food, and would go home to feed at one o'clock p.m. and leave again finally at five o'clock p.m. for the same purpose, he left before five p.m.ers, another man was called in, he was quite cheery and came in and out and did what he pleased, on being asked what he would require as salary, he replied, oh, give me a rupee every market day, and that'll do me, the person was not in service when market day rolled round, and I hear that this European, who loves experiments of this kind, has gone back to the Chinese, Chu Chan Kang Mei was going through a sort of New Year carousal as I entered the town, and everybody was garmented for the festival, I had great difficulty in getting a place to stay. People allowed me to career about in search of a room, treating me with courteous indifference, but none offered to house me. At last the headman of the village appeared, and with many kindly expressions of an inligibility led me to his house. A crowd had gathered in the street, and several women were taking from the front room the general stock and trade of the village ironmonger. Scores of huge iron cooking pans were being passed through the window. Tables were pushed noisily through the doorway. Primitive cooking appliances were being hurled about in the air. Bamboo baskets came out by the dozen, and there was much else. 
bags of paddy, old chairs the low stool of the shan, with a thirty inch back, drawers of copper cash, brooms, a few old spears, pots of pork fat, barrels of wine the same as I had blistered the foot of a pony with, two or three old piquets, worn out clothes, disused ladies shoes, baby's gear, and last of all the man himself appeared, men and women set to to clean up, an old woman clasped me to her bosom, and I was bidden to enter, New Year festivities were for the nonce neglected for the novel delight of gazing upon the inner domesticity of this traveling wonder, into his very holy of holies, I received nine invitations to dinner, I dined with mine host and his six sons, through the heavy evening murk a dull clangor stirred the air the tolling of shrill bells and the beating of dull gongs, and all the hideous paraphernalia of eastern celebrations, the populace shan almost to a man were or bent on seeing me, a task rendered difficult by the gathering darkness of night, soldiers guarded the way, and there were several broken heads, they came, stared and wondered, and then passed away for others to come in shoals, laughingly, and seeming no longer to harbor the hostile feelings apparent as I entered the town, my shaving magnifier amused them wonderfully, there was an outcry as I entered the room after we had dined, followed by a scream of women in almost hysterical laughter, when they caught sight of me, however, a brief pause ensued, and the solemn hush, that even in a callous crowd invariably attends the actual presence of the long-awaited personage, reigned and broken for a while, then one spoke, then another ventured to address me, and the spell of silence gave way to noise and general excitability, and the people began speedily to close upon me, anxious to get a glimpse of such a peculiar white man, later on, when the shutters were up and the public thus kept off, the family foregathered and asked into my room, bringing with them their own tea and nuts, and laying themselves out to be entertained, my whole gear, now reduced to most meager proportions, was scrutinized by all, there were four men and five women, the usual offshoots, and the aged couple who held proprietary rights over the place, they sat on my bed, on my boxes, one of the children sat on my knee, and the ladies, seemingly of the easiest virtue, overhauled my bedclothes and blushingly, the murmuring noise of the vast expectant New Year multitude died off gradually, like the retreating surge of a distant sea, and the hot motionless atmosphere in my room, with eleven people stepping on one another's toes in the cramped area, became more and more weightily intensified, the husband of one of the women a miserable, emaciated specimen for a shan came forward, asking whether I could cure his disease, I fear he will never be cured, his arm and one side of his body was one mass of sores, before it could be seen four layers of Chinese paper had to be removed, one huge plan in leaf, and a thick layer of black stuff resembling tar, I was busy for some thirty minutes dressing it with new bandages, I then gave him ointment for subsequent dressings, whereupon he put on his coat and walked out of the room leaving the door open as he went without even a word of gratitude, the Chinese pride themselves upon their gratitude, it is vigorous towards the dead and perhaps towards the emperor although this may be doubted, but as a grace of daily life it is almost absent, I have known cases where missionaries have got up in the middle of the night to attend to poisoning cases and accidents requiring urgent treatment, have known them to attend to people at great distances from their own homes and make them better, but never a word of thanks not even the mere pittance charged for the actual cost of medicine. Footnotes, footnote P, by the UN man, the link between India and the Yangtze, by Major H.R. Davies, Cambridge University Press, Chapter XXVI, today is from Burma.
Tropical wildness induces ennui. The river taping. At Chiosingai. Possibility of West China as a holiday resort from Burma. Fascination of the country. Menu reached with difficulty. The kitchens. Good work of the American Baptist Mission. Mr. Roberts. Arrival at borderland of Burma. Last dealings with Chinese officials. British territory. Thoughts on the trend of progress in China. Beautiful Burma. End of long journey. I was now today's march from the British Burma border. The landscape in this district was solemn and imposing as I trudged on again. Very tired indeed. After a day's rest at Chuchung. In the morning heavy tropical vapors of milky whiteness stretched over the sky and the earth. Nature seemed sleeping. As if wrapped in a light veil. It attracted me and absorbed me. Dreaming. In spite of myself. Ennui invaded me at first. And under the all-powerful constraint of influences so fatal to human personality thought died away by degrees like a flame in a vacuum. For I was again in the east. The real. Luxurious. Indolent east. The true land of pantheism and one must go there to realize the indefinable sensations which almost make the nirvana of the Buddhist comprehensible. The river taping farther down, so different from its aspect a couple of days ago, where it rushed at a tremendous speed over its rocky bed, was now broad and calm and placid, and extremely picturesque. The banks were covered with trees beyond Menuhin. Near the water the undergrowth was of a fine green, but on a higher level the yellow and red leaves, hardly holding on to the withered trees, were carried away with the slightest breath of wind. At Shiosingai, on February 15th, I again had difficulty in getting a room, so I waited, and whilst my men searched about for a place where I could sleep, an extremely tall fellow came up to me, and having felt with his finger and thumb the texture of my tweeds and expressed satisfaction thereof, said, Come, elder brother, I have my dwelling in this hostelry and my upper chamber is at your disposal, and then he added with a twinkle in his eye, Kaonim, Kaonim, bold face whereat I became weary, Lao Chang, however, was more cute, whilst I was assuring this well-dressed holiday maker that he must not think the stranger churlish in not accepting at once the proffered services, but that I would go to look at the room, he sprang past us and went on ahead, in a few moments I was slowly going hence with the multitude, Lao Chan nodded carelessly to the strange company there assembled, and passing through the room with a soft, cat-like tread, began to ascend a dark flight of narrow stairs leading to the second floor of the inn, and I down below startled and bewildered by mysterious words from everyone, watched his blue garments vanishing upwards, and like a man driven by irresistible necessity, muttered incoherent excuses to my amazed companions, and in a blind, and reasoning, unconquerable impulse rushed after him, but I wish I had not, there were several ladies, who, all more or less indezibile, scampered around with their bundles of gear sewing, baby's clothes, tin pots, hair ornaments, boxes of powder and scented soap of that finest quality imported from Burma, selling for less than you can buy the genuine article for in London, and then we took possession, if once there is a railway to tend you from Burma, a visit to West China, even on to Tailifu, for those who are prepared to rough it a little, will become quite a common trip. A few days up the Arawadai to Bono, through scenery of a peculiar kind of beauty eclipsed on another of the world's great rivers, would be succeeded by a day or two over some of the best country which Upper Burma anywhere affords. And then, when once past Tenchu, the grandeur of the mountains is amply compensating to those who love nature in her beautiful isolation and peace. 
from a recuperating standpoint, perhaps, it would not quite answer the reins would be a drawback to road travel, and it would at best mean roughing it, but for the many in Burma who wish to take a holiday and have not the time to go to Europe, I see no reason why Tenchu should not develop into what Darjeeling is to Calcutta and what Japan is to the British ports farther east. Expense would not be heavy, Tubano would be easy, as things now stand, with no railway. One would need to take a few provisions and cooking utensils, and a camp bed and tent, unless one would be prepared to do as the author did, and patronize Chinese inns, such as they are. The rest would be easy to get on the road, for three days from Bhamodok bungalows are available, and to a man knowing the country it would be an easy matter to arrange his comforts. To one who knows the conditions, there is in the trip a good deal to fascinate, for in the lives and customs of the people, in the nature of the country, in the free and easy life the traveler would himself develop having a peep at things as they were back in the ancient days of the Bible to the brain-fagged professional or commercial there is nothing better in the whole of the East. He would get some excellent shooting, especially in the Salwan Valley, not exactly a health resort, however, and had the inclinations towards botanical, ethnological, craniological, or philological studies, he would be at a loss to find anywhere in the world a more interesting area. But a man should never leave the Talutitium, the main road in China if he would experience the minimum of discomfort and annoyance, which under best conditions is considerable to an irritable man. As I sit down now, on the very spot where Margari, of the British Consulate Service was murdered in 1875, I regret that I have sacrificed a great deal to secure most of the photographs which decorate this section of my book. No one, not even my military escort, knows the way and is being sworn at by my men therefore, how I am to reach Manchian, across the river at Taping, I do not quite know, Menuim, so interesting in history, is a native Shankachino Chinese town and touched by the years slovenly, dirty, and disciplined, immoral, where law and order and civilization have gained at best but a precarious foothold, the most characteristic feature of the people being the gambler's instinct, but I remember that I am coming into Burma, into the real east, where the tangle and the topsy-turvedom, the crooked vision and the distorted travesty of the truth, which result from judging the Oriental from the standpoint of the Europeans and looking at the East through the eyes of the West, impress themselves upon one's mind in bewildering fashion as a hopeless problem. Everything is all at cross-purposes. However, although I lost my way from Menuhin to Manchian, I got my photographs of kitchens. Those people whose appearance is that they have no one to care for them body or soul. They're thick, and combed locks, so long and lank as to resemble deck swaths, overlapped ruthwise the ugliest aboriginal faces I ever saw in Asia or America, and their eyes under shaggy brows looked out with diabolical fire. So much information is to be obtained from the eye upper Burma gazetteer about the kitchens that it is needless for me to write much here, especially as I can add nothing. But I feel I should like to say just a word of praise of the remarkable work of the American Baptist Mission, which has its headquarters at Bono, among this tribe in Burma. At the time I arrived in the city the annual festival was being conducted at the Baptist Church, and hundreds of kitchens were assembled in the splendid premises of this mission. They had come from many miles around, and to one who at previous times in his residence in the Far East had written disparagingly about missionaries and their work. There came some little personal shame as he looked upon the extremely creditable work of the American missionaries in this district. Kitchens are a somewhat uncivilized and quarrelsome race, 
unspeakably immoral, and steeped in every vice against which the Christian missionary has to set his face a most difficult people to work among. But there I saw scores and scores of baptized Christians living a life clean and ennobling, endeavoring honestly to break away from their degrading customs of centuries, some of them exceedingly intelligent people. I speak of this because I feel that in the face of the truthful and malicious descriptions which in former years have got into print respecting this very mission and the very missionaries on this field, it is only fair that people in the homeland interested in the work should know what their American brethren are doing here. I cannot praise too highly this mission and the enthusiastic band of workers whom it was my pleasure to meet. In Mr. Roberts, the superintendent of the field, the American Baptist Board have a man of wonderful resource who is not only an ardent Christian evangelist and capable administrator, but a gentleman of considerable business ability and a remarkable organizer, a writer who, passing through in 1894, was indebted to Mr. Roberts for many kindnesses, found that the only adverse criticism he could make of the missionary was in respect to his knowledge of horses. My experience is that in the whole of the Far East there can be found no more capable pioneer missionary and his friends in America should pray that Mr. Roberts may be spared many years still to control the work on the successful mission field in which he has spent so much of his labor of love for the Kitchens. Kitchens form the bulk of the population in the extreme north of Burma. To the west they extend to Assam, and to the south into the Shan states, as far even as latitude 20 degrees 30. By far the largest proportion of them live in Burmese territory, but they also extend into a western Yunnan. Though nowhere are they found farther east than longitude 99 degrees Manchian is the last Yaman place before reaching the British border. I crossed the river taping from Menuhin, being shown the road by a Burmese member of the Buddhistic yellow cloth, who was most pressing that I should stay with him for a few days. Again did I get a fright that my manuscript would never get into print, for my pony, Rusty, probably cognizant of the fact that he, too, was finishing his long tramp nearly stamped the bottom of the boat out, and threatened to send us down by river past Bono quicker than our arrival was scheduled. The large official paper given to one's military escort from point to point was here produced for the last time, and great ado was made about me, reading this document aloud from the top of the steps. When he came to my name the Mandarin bowed very low, called me Dingbaran BG a sign of highest respect, asked if I would exchange cards and then lapsed unconsciously into profuse congratulation to myself that I should have been born an Englishman. So far as he knew, I could be assured that the existing relations between the administrative bodies of his contemptible country and my own royal land were of a nature so felicitously mutual and peaceful in fact. Both governments saw eye to eye in regard to international affairs in far western China that he felt sure that I should arrive at the bridge leading into Burma without personal harm. He then, with a colossal bow to myself and a gentle wave of his three-inch fingernail, handed me over with pungent emphasis of speech to the keeping of a Chinese and a Shan, who with a keen sense of favors to come were to form my escort to Burma's border. A low grunt of unrestrained approval came from the multitude, the underlings Chinoka Chinobermo Shan people who ran about in a little of each of the clothing characteristic of the foresaid races were all busy in their endeavors to extricate from me a few cash apiece by doing all and more than was necessary. Then the great man rose. He condescended to depart. He passed from the threshold, turned, paused, bowed, turned again, went down the steps, bowed again a long curving bow, 
which nearly sent him to the ground and then continued with a light heart towards that loveliest land of the east. My men exhibited no emotion, that they were coming into British territory was of no concern to them, they had come from far away in the interior, and were the greenest of the green, the rawest of the raw. But soon I passed over a small bridge, a spot where two great empires meet. I was in Burma, so I have crossed from one end of China to the other. I entered China on March 4, 1909, I came out on February 14, 1910. I had come to see how far the modern spirit had penetrated into the hidden recesses of the Chinese empire. One may be little given to philosophizing, and possess but scanty skill in putting into words the conclusions which form themselves in one's mind, but it is impossible to cross China entirely unobservant. One must begin, no matter how dimly, to perceive something of the causes which are at work. By the incoming of the European to inland China a transformation is being wrought not the natural growth of a gradual evolution, itself the result of propulsion from within, but produced, on the contrary, by artificial means, in bitter conflict with inherent instincts, inherited traditions, innate tendencies, characteristics, and genius, racial and individual. In the eyes of the Chinese of the old school these changes in the habit of life infinitely old are improving nothing and ruining much all is empty, vapid, useless to God and man, the tawdry shell. The valueless husk of ancient Chinese life is here still, remains untouched in many places, as will have been seen in previous chapters, but the soul within is steadily and surely, if slowly, undergoing a process of final atrophy, but yet the proper opening up of the country by internal reform and not by external pressure has as yet hardly commenced in immense areas of the empire far removed from the imperial city of Peking and the mere fact that the Chinese propose such an absurd program as that which plans the building of all their railways without the aid of foreign capital is sufficient to react in an unwholesome manner economically. BHP I cannot but admit that, whilst in most parts of my journey there are distinct traces of reform I speak, of course, of the outlying parts of China and some very striking traces, too, and a real longing on the part of far-seeing officials to escape from a humiliating international position. It is distinctly apparent that in everything which concerns Europe and the Western world the people and the officials as a whole are of one mind in the methods of procrastination which are so dear to the heart of the celestial, and that peculiar opposition to Europeanism which has marked the real East since the beginning of modern history, and now lovely, lovely Burma. I had not been in Burma two minutes before the very box containing the clothes into which I must change before I could enter into the social life of Burma swung from the broken pole of one of my coolies, and rolled rapidly towards the river. It was recovered after great trouble. Thick jungle land lay out before me. Fleecy clouds in the dense blue sky hung lazily over the green hills. The heavy air was pregnant with that delicious ease known only in the tropics all was still and sweet. The river flowed grandly from the interior through magnificent forest country, receiving on either shore the frequent tribute of other minor streams, and its banks were marvelous cliffs of jungle tangles of giant trees on crowding underwood, clinging vine and festooning parasite rising sheer from the water's brink, now long clusters of villages, deep in the shade of palm and fruit trees, now wide expanses of grass-grown meadow, where the grazing grounds dip to the river and where the only echoes of China are the resting packed horse caravans the banks cut into huge trampled clefts by the passage of the kind trooping down to drink. Occasional wooded islands broke the monotony of the river, 
and were just discernible from the magnificent English roads which skirted the hills high up from the river, and yellow sandspits and big wedges of granite and rock ran far out into its uneven course. By day the joyous Burma sun smiled upon all, and at midday poured its merciless heat down upon all mankind, and heating the weary wanderer whose tramp was now near done. At night the tropical moon turned all this river Rhine world to the likeness of a very fairyland. Lying in a long chair in the dark dangalos one drank in the scenes which succeeded one another in bewildering succession, and felt himself thrilled by an almost fierce appreciation of eastern beauty. It was good to meet again an Englishman, a sturdy, firm-featured Englishman, whose love of the East, like mine own, was a veritable obsession. The sun glare of the tropics had parched the color out of our white skin, and despite the fact that malaria came back again here to taunt me, Yet I was again in the East that I loved, that had scarred and marked me ere my time mayhap, and yet I with many such of my own countrymen, despite her rough handling, were to ship her. In three days I was in Bono. Footnotes, footnote ph, I believe personally that the main object of the Yunnan provincial government in employing two American engineers, who at the present moment August, 1910 are surveying a route from Yunnan Fu to the Yangtze, is merely official bluff. It is preferable to pay two men a monthly stipend if the official face can be preserved and the Chinese dogged official procrastination be maintained, rather than to allow foreigners to come in still farther. Footnote P. This was of course written long before the Four Nations Loan was signed, and Tuan Fang appointed Director General of the Railways in May, 1911. We should now see a speedy reformation of railway matters in China if Tuan is given an absolutely free hand. E.J.D. End of Book I.I.